Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are uh, in what's called Shabbat Nachamu this week. So we uh, celebrate, celebrated, we commemorated uh, Tisha B'Av this week, the ninth of Av, the ninth day of Av. And the ninth day of Av is the day that we commemorate the breaching of the walls of the temple. Uh, it's become the day that we commemorate the destruction of both the first and second temples. Um, the rabbis said this is the day the decree for the Jews to leave Spain and all Spanish territories happened. Uh, so the ninth of Av is the day that we commemorate um, all the catastrophes that have been befallen the Jewish people, including during the Shoah, during the Holocaust. And it really begins this period, it begins this season that leads into Elul, the month of Elul. And once we come through the month of Elul, the first day of the next month of Tishrei is Rosh Hashanah. So really we begin right now the process that leads us to the Yamim Noraim, the days of awe. And it begins with with brokenness, it begins with destruction, it begins with sadness and grieving. And um, so as I talked with our spirituality group this week, uh, it's, it's making more sense, the Jewish calendar than ever. Um, but certainly this, this starting in breakage and loss and the, the loss of everything we've known, the loss of everything that's normal, that regulates right, our lives um, till now. And, um, and the idea is that we can't really approach the Yamim Noraim, we can't approach the days of awe unless and until we have broken open, if you will. We have to break, we have to breach the walls that we've built and we have to face loss and we have to face grief and we have to face what has fallen away and we need to face what needs to fall away as well. Like what is it, what is it that we, even though we hang on to it is not healthy for us, is not good for us. And that's really the work that begins now. Um, So the Torah portion, this is the Torah portion we read after Tisha B'Av every year. And the Haftarah is Nachamu, which is comfort. So Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami, God speaks in the words of the prophet. Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami, comfort, comfort my people. And so like the work right now is how do we both stay in touch with grief? How do we stay in touch with what's being destroyed? How do we stay in touch with loss? And yet do that in a way that's going to move us towards what we hope is real change and doing things differently. And, and so this year, I'm just really aware because we're not distracted by so many other things. Like uh, this is the time we're usually on vacation. Many of us, we're usually going away. I would have just been coming back from Hartman. Um, you know, there, there, there's a shift in the summer, particularly for those of us who work in the Jewish world, there's a break between kind of the religious school program year, our program year, and and the high holidays. This is the time I'm usually reading and reflecting and writing and thinking and talking and learning, you know, so I can be ready with something to share at the high holidays. Obviously, all bets are off this year. 
But because we're not distracted by other things, I think we're able in certain ways to live into the Jewish calendar and awareness of Jewish time differently than normal. So I just want us, I'm going to keep you know, reminding us where we are in the Jewish liturgical cycle, in the Jewish calendar, um, because I think we don't really we don't really understand and appreciate usually the connections and the depth and the wisdom of the calendar and our observances on the calendar. So commemorating Tisha B'Av, commemorating all those catastrophes that have befallen the Jewish people um, is a way that we start from a place of discomfort, a place of being unsettled, a place of things not being normal or usual. And that's going to take us through Sukkot and Simchat Torah, which the rabbis call Zman Simchatenu, the time of our joy. And so we, we have this arc, we have this movement from now, from July through the, the celebration of Sukkot and Simchat Torah, which is going to happen right towards the end of September. So that's a long arc. <laughs> um, we tend to think of, you know, of, of the Yamim Noraim, the 10 days of awe, and that's it, right? And so, um, so really in their wisdom, the rabbis wove together Jewish history and the agricultural calendar that was observed in Israel, um, but also the historical layers that they placed on top of the agricultural festivals um, to really give us a full experience of, of movement uh, and the work that we have to do at each stage of that movement. So, um, so I'm trying hard these days. Those of you who are, who've been talking in different forms uh, with me online know that I'm really trying to stay present right now to grief. Um, I'm done. I don't know about y'all, but I'm done with this pandemic. Like I'm done, but it's not done with us. Right. And so, um, cause we've done a crap job, frankly, of dealing with it. Um, and so, and we haven't had a uniform approach and we haven't really you know, really tamped it down. And so we're, we're really being shaken around by, by this pandemic. Um, and if you, you know, talk to scientists, this ain't the first, this, this ain't going to be the only one. <laughs> you know, there's, you know, there's going to be more of these. So, um, so just trying to really stay present to my grief. And so for me, it was very helpful um, that it's Tisha B'Av, which where it's really time for us to stay in our loss and in our grief. So I just offer that as a, as a opening uh, to our study this morning. So we're always reading Ve'et Hanan. We're always reading this Parsha immediately following Tisha B'Av and the Haftarah, like I said, Nachamu, Nachamu Ami, comfort my people. Um, and uh, this is the Parsha in which we have the Shema and the Ve'havta. We also get a reiteration of the 10 utterances uh, otherwise known as the Ten Commandments, um, but it's not really commandments, whatever. So, but we get a reiteration by the Deuteronomist of those uh, ten things that were spoken at Sinai that, that Deuteronomy calls Chorev, the mountain of Chorev. Uh, and so, like I, when I introduced the, the study of Deuteronomy last week, and I'm going to be quoting Micha Goodman a lot during our, our work with Deuteronomy this year, because he has just these brilliant lectures about um, the Deuteronomist and what the Deuteronomist is about and what the agenda of the Deuteronomist is, and then what, what language and metaphors the Deuteronomist uses um, to help move uh, the people to this uh, new place that 
that the Josianic reform uh, is trying to achieve. So, uh, but we're not going to, but I'm going to talk about Micha's talk about Deuteronomy in the places where he references it. So like a lot of it is in Kitavo, uh, Kitisa, Kitavo. Um, so um, we're not going to do that. So we're not, I'm not going to lecture from Micha now, but, um, but I want us to think about the lens I introduced last week through which we can see Deuteronomy, which is that this is now a law code to which everything else is subject. This is the move towards the law being the organizing principle and the highest authority. So if we take that seriously, like we, you know, we talked about Bernard Levinson's work last week. Um, if we take that seriously, that Deuteronomy is all about subjugating all branches of leadership to the law, then this week, one of the things we're going to see is, as I want to talk a little bit about what does that mean for the lawgiver? So if Moshe is the lawgiver embodied, how does the Deuteronomist portray Moshe in such a way that is different than we might see Moshe in Exodus, than we might see Moshe in Numbers? Um, and, and it is different. So we're going to look, we're going to, I want us to look through that lens as we look at the text this morning. So we're at the beginning, we're at the first uh, Re triennial reading of every Parsha. And we're in the first year of the triennial reading. So we're beginning at Deuteronomy um, at 3, at Hanan. And so here we have the words of Moshe, right, talking to the people. And I, I, I pleaded, right, looking for chain, looking for grace. I pleaded for grace for y'all. <laughs> with Yod Hey Vav Hey at that time, and what did what did he say to God? Adonai Yod Hey Vav Hey, like Lord God, which is how you know Adonai is translated um, in so many of these English translations. You who let your servant see the first works of your greatness and your mighty hand, you whose powerful deeds no God in heaven or earth can equal. Why do we need heaven and earth here? In the ancient Near East, it was very common to use heaven and earth as witnesses to what's being agreed to or what's being said, um, but also a sense that other peoples worshipped, right, the, the sky and, and certain aspects of earth. So the Deuteronomist is always coming to move our attention off of that, right? So either using heaven and earth as witnesses, um, but... But very, very clear here that yud Hey vav Hey is not heaven or earth. That God is not those things. God is above all of those things. And what, what is Moshe saying to God? Moshe is saying, I said to you, let me, I pray, cross over to see the good land on the other side of the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon, the Lebanon. But, so look at the wordplay here. Look at this beautiful wordplay, which you don't get in the English. Look at verse 25. You don't have to read Hebrew to see that there's similarity between the, the word beginning verse 25 and beginning verse 26. 
Ebra, let me cross over, Vayit Aber on 26, but God was angry. This is a wordplay, a beautiful wordplay in Hebrew, um, which, of course, the Bible loves. The Bible loves wordplay. Vayit Aber Adonai be, but God was wrathful with me, Lema'anchem, because of y'all, and would not listen to me. Vayomer Adonai Eli, and God said to me, Rav lecha, it's enough from you. Altosef daber Eli od badavar hazeh. Don't talk to me again about this business. All right, We're, you remember Rav lechem? We had this in the Korach, right? When Korach starts his craziness, right? Right, he says to to Moshe about Moshe and Aharon, Rav lachem. it's enough with y'all. Don't you have enough? You've taken everything. And Moshe says, Rav lachem. you want to talk about it's enough? Let's talk about it's enough with y'all. And so now God is saying, Rav lachem. like it's enough with all y'all. Like, don't talk to me about this again. All right, so go up to the summit of Pisgah and gaze to the west, the north, the south and the east, look at it well for you. You will not cross over this Jordan. Give Joshua his instructions and imbue him with strength and courage for he will go across at the head of the people and he shall allot to them the land that you may only see. And then they stayed on at Baal Peor. What do you notice about this incident, the way the Deuteronomist is retelling it through Moshe? God was angry. Uh Uh-huh. Go ahead. Moshe's blaming the people. (laughs) Whereas earlier, it was Moshe's fault. All right. And it's your fault and not taking responsibility himself. How was it Moshe's fault? Uh, Well, there's the incident of the rock where God told him to speak to the rock and he beat the rock. I think the rabbis find some other things that I don't recall at the moment. Right? So God speaks to Moshe and says, speak to the rock that it might bring forth water. But up time before, Moshe was told to hit the rock. So he hit the rock and brought forth water. That was the first generation that went out of Egypt. Right? The second generation, once those people died... And now the new generation was thirsty. God says to Moshe, speak to the rock to bring forth water. Moshe strikes it instead, and it brings forth water. But right after that, God says, and by the way, you're not going into the promised land. You're not going to make it. And the rabbis want to say it's either because Moshe defies God and, and hits the rock, or when Moshe speaks to the people and he's angry, he says, what, are we supposed to get water for you out of this rock, you spoiled brats? And in that, it could be that Moshe took credit for the miracle by saying, should we bring forth water for you? In either case, it is something about what Moshe does that causes him to lose entrance to the promised land. We're not sure exactly what it is, but it's very clear in the story that it is Moshe who does something that leads God to be unhappy enough to say, you're not going in. 
for the Deuteronomist now, Moshe says, and I lost access to entering the promised land, Lama'anchem, because of y'all. What's the, what's the move here of the Deuteronomist? Why? Why do this? Because he just doesn't want to accept blame. He doesn't want to say, you know, I mean, first of all, when he's not acting in God's will, God says, do something. And he's like, oh, I'm so cool. I'm going to strike the rock. It's already, you know, the two strikes. And then he's, he's blaming. He's refusing to be accountable for, okay, my behavior made it so. That's right, so just- he's, he's refusing to take responsibility. So if, 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 if we're moving away from the Deuteronomist and we're just looking at Moshe, we're just looking at Moses, why might Moses be, why isn't Moshe taking responsibility? What's going on for him? Well, part of, part of the thing is this is part of the pattern of Moses getting old and not being the great leader anymore. Mm-hmm. I think happens over Deuteronomy and the reason that leadership has to be turned over to someone else. Okay, nice. So he's cranky. Yeah. He's old. He's crotchety. He's tired of this business. He's tired of these people. Maybe in Moshe's mind, it really is their fault, right? Like, what do you expect of me? This is who I've got to deal with? Like, right, it's, it, so possibly Moshe really believes it's their fault that he's, he's done the best he can, but he's just, he reached his wits end at that moment. And it was their fault that he Remember, he didn't, he didn't want this in the first place. He tells God, I, he, he didn't want it anyway. Right. So the old crotchety leader and all it does is reinforce that it's time for him to go. Right. And God right here says, you know, Moshe even reiterates that God said to him, charge Joshua, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have that. We don't have that in the original version. When Moshe gets told you're not going into the promised land, we don't hear word one about Joshua. Moshe conflates those things. Moshe says, God said to me, because of y'all, I'm not going in and that I should appoint Joshua leader. So it seems that Moshe is making that link between his own failure that he doesn't name um, and the appointment of a new leader. Linda, no matter what, if he's a, a, a great leader and perhaps he's past his prime, a great leader should know or should hope that he can speak in a calm manner and not berate his flock, so to speak so that they can finish their job to get to the promised land. Right. And he didn't, right? No. He lost right. it. Right. He lost it with them. Um, you know, I know I said this probably whatever the last three years, I guess it was that we studied this. And I can't help but think that the positive message is, you know, I try to look for what is our message here. And that, you know, um, that God says, listen, it's enough. You, you led the people, you did this, blah, blah, and then they get to go. And if we think, but I just want to be alive for my uh, daughter's or the granddaughter's wedding, and I just want to do this, and I just want to do that, and let me just see the end of COVID, and I just want to be alive for... Um, 
that we're never going to be okay. That it's enough to say, I've had my impact and that these people get to go on. That's, you know, for me, and I know I've shared this the last time that we did this, but I, it's so powerful to me that that is what I think the spiritual lesson, however it happens, I feel like um, it, that's my lesson. Yeah. There you and, and Moshe's not there. Right. Right. He's angry. Moshe is not there. He's like, it's y'all's fault. Judith? Also, literally, by Moses saying, I'm mad at you all, and, and God saying, enough of that. It's a literary way of changing the direction of the, st- the story and giving Joshua and the rest of the people a, an, a, an excuse or reason to change the story altogether, to move to a different direction. Moses is kind of leaving the picture so we can go in another way. So like God is saying, I'm tired of talking about this. Yeah, so let's go somewhere else. Right. And, and the story goes somewhere else then. Right. Exactly. All right. So um, possibly also, if we're going back to the, the uh, mission of the Deuteronomist, you know, partly it's that the lawgiver's not at fault. If you need to, if your law, if it's all about the law and this is the person giving the law for the Deuteronomist, Maybe the Deuteronomist doesn't want Moshe to be at fault, right? It's the people. Moshe didn't do anything. It was was because of the people. Because what is the Deuteronomist trying to say? The Deuteronomist for the rest of this book, putting this speech in the mouth of Moshe, the goodbye speech of Moshe to the people, the whole book is about if y'all don't behave – If you don't keep this law, if you don't follow this instruction, you're toast, right? So it's it's in the mission of the Deuteronomist to say the people screwed up because the Deuteronomist is talking to people who have screwed it up. That's why you need a reform. You don't need a massive reform if everything's going swimmingly. You only need a massive reform when, when you feel like existentially you are at the brink. That is the time Deuteronomy is written, where peoples are being hauled off. The 10 northern tribes have been hauled off, destroyed, have lost sovereignty. They watch other peoples being conquered by Neo-Assyria and being hauled off to worship the gods of Assyria. They are at the brink when this is written. So for the Deuteronomist, y'all need to pay attention because if you screw this up, you're done. You're, you're done. And of course we know what happens. They're conquered, right? And they're carried off. All right. With an ayin. So, and now Israel... Here we go. Here's the language of the Deuteronomist. What is the Deuteronomist saying? Shema. Right? This is very much the language of the Deuteronomist. Ve'ata Yisrael. And now, Israel. Shema el achukim ve'el mishpatim asher anochim lamedetchem. Listen, Israel. And, and in this sense, Shema, it, it, like it's used throughout Deuteronomy, 
And like it's used in the Shema, Shema is not just about listening or hearing. It also implies obeying. You know, if you're really listening, right, when you tell your kids, get me that thing off the counter, if they're listening, it means they'll do it. If they hear you and they're listening, it means they obey, right? That's implied. So, so it is with the word Shema all over Deuteronomy, Ve'ata Yisrael Shema, listen to the chukim and the mishpatim, the laws and the ordinances, right, that I am teaching you to do. you that you may live and that you may inherit the land that God, right, um, gave to your ancestors and is giving to you. So remember, this is at a time where they are, they are threatened with losing sovereignty over the land. How do you not lose sovereignty over the land? Shema, listen to the laws and the ordinances that I'm teaching you. You shall not add anything to what I command you or take away anything from it, but keep the commandments of Yudhe your God, that I enjoin upon you. Probably that means this book of Deuteronomy. You saw with your own eyes what God God did in the matter of Baal Peor, that Yudhe your God, wiped out from among you every person who apostatized. And y'all, they came Ba'adonai. You clung to Yudhe your God. Chayim Kuchem Hayom. That's who's alive today. The only people alive today are the ones who clung to Yudhe the same way that kept you alive before. That's going to keep you alive now. Re'eh. Again, so this language of listening and this language of seeing. Re'eh. Look. Limadati etchem chukim I have taught you laws and ordinances that God commanded, right, to do for you to abide in the land that you are about to enter and occupy. Observe them faithfully, for that will be proof of your what? Chachmatchem uvinatchem. What does the Deuteronomist care about? The Deuteronomist cares about wisdom and understanding. Bina, chokhma and bina, wisdom and understanding. So the Deuteronomist is, these are the qualities, right? We talked about it with judges. Who are your judges? Those of you who are wise and discerning, not people with street smarts who have proven themselves. This is the elitism in a way of the Deuteronomist. And you people need to live into these values of wisdom and discernment, meaning you have to know the law code. If you want to be successful, you need to know and understand this legal system. That's how you're going to stay in the land. For what great nation is there that has a God so close at hand as is Yudhei our God, whenever we call upon God? Or what great nation has laws and rules as perfect as all HaTorah Hazot, all of this teaching that I set before you this day? When we read it like this, Deuteronomy makes a lot of sense the way it's phrased. 
right? This is all about HaTorah HaZot, this Torah, meaning the book of Deuteronomy and its remaking of the laws. But take utmost care and watch yourselves scrupulously so that you do not forget the things that you saw with your own eyes. These people did not see anything with their own eyes. The generation that Moshe is addressing didn't see anything. Their parents did. And the generation that Deuteronomy is talking to is hundreds and hundreds of years later. They've seen nothing. But this is about ritual memory, right? My father was a wandering Aramean. I was, we were slaves in the land of Egypt. No, we weren't. Our ancestors were, but we're supposed to sit around the table and recite that history as if it happened to us. This is the move of the Deuteronomist. So that you don't forget the things that you saw with your own eyes, so they do not fade from your mind as long as you live, and make them known to your children and your children's children. Right? This is echoing the words that we know so well from Ve'ahavta. But we only pick out Shema and Ve'ahavta from Deuteronomy. This is typical language for Deuteronomy. The Ve'ahavta is the most best known of it because we know it by heart and we say it all the time. But here it is all over the book of Deuteronomy. Teach it to your children and your children's children. That's how you will build a society that is worthy of staying on the land. The day you stood before Yudhei your God, at Chorev, when Yudhei said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words in order that they may learn to revere me as long as they live on earth and teach, and they will teach their children. You came forward and stood at the foot of the mountain. The mountain was ablaze with flames to the very skies, dark with densest clouds. And Yudhei spoke to you out of the fire, the fire that goes all the way to heaven. You heard the sound of words, but perceived no shape, nothing but a voice. This is very important to the Deuteronomist. You saw nothing because you can't see God. That is not exactly the account we have in Exodus, right? Um, but it is very clear for the Deuteronomist that these are phenomena they are not Yudhevafe. Yudhevafe is in the fire. The voice is in the fire, but not God. God forbid. Um, that is that is, we moved way past the experiences of the people who told the story of Exodus. We are now in a different kind of monotheism and a different kind of God who does not appear. God only God's voice is heard. And God declared to you the covenant that he commanded you to observe, the Ten Commandments. And God inscribed them on two tablets of stone. At that same time, God commanded me to impart to you laws and rules for you to observe in the land that you are about to cross and occupy. So the Deuteronomist is putting this in God's mouth at Chorev. For your own sake, therefore, be most careful, since you saw no shape. When Yudhei your God, spoke to you at Chorev out of the fire. Not to act wickedly and make for yourselves a sculptured image in any likeness, whatever, the form of a man or woman, the form of any beast on earth, the form of any winged bird that flies in the sky, 
the form of anything that creeps on the ground, the form of any fish that is in the waters below the earth. So possibly the Deuteronomist is showing us that the Deuteronomist knows the creation story according to P. The P narrative gives us, right, the all of these things that are created. It seems the Deuteronomist is familiar with that story of creation. And when you look up at the sky and behold the sun and the moon and the stars, the whole heavenly host, you must not be lured into bowing down to them or serving them. These, Yudhevafe, your God, allotted to other peoples everywhere under the heaven, but you, right, this disjunctive vav, ve'etchem, lakach Yudhevafe, but God took you out of Egypt, that iron blast furnace, to be God's very own people, kayom hazeh, as it is today. But God was angry with me on your account and swore that I should not cross the Jordan and enter the good land that Yudhe your God, is assigning to you as heritage, for I must die in this land. I shall not cross the Jordan, but you will cross and take possession of the good land. Take care then. Take care not to forget the covenant that Yudhe your God, concluded with you and not to make for yourselves a sculptured image in any likeness against which Yudhe has enjoined you. For God is, what? Esh ochla, a consuming fire. El kana, a jealous God. Or if we look at that study that we did, if this baby comes from the Arabic, an impassioned God. When you have begotten children and children's children and are long established in the land, meaning right now, that's who the Deuteronomist is speaking to. You who have had children and children's children living in the land a long time, should you act wickedly, you people, right now, and make for yourselves a sculptured image in any likeness, causing Yudhei your God, displeasure and vexation, I call heaven and earth this day to witness against you that you shall soon perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You shall not long endure in it, but will be utterly wiped out. Yudhei will scatter you among the peoples, and only a scant few of you shall be left among the nations to which Yudhei will drive you. This is what happened. That's exactly what happened. So it helps us to hear Deuteronomy when we hear it in its setting. And in its setting, they are at the edge of losing everything. And they do. They are crushed and they are they're decimated. Not by Neo-Assyria, by the way, but by, right, the Babylonians, who beat up the Neo-Assyrians. So Babylonia, there was, a, there was a treaty with Babylonia. Israel had a treaty. Judah had a treaty with Babylonia. Neo-Assyria was the threat. Neo-Assyria conquers uh, Israel in 722. Now they're under threat. Judah's under threat. It turns out the Babylonians beat the Neo-Assyrians. And so it looked like everything was going to be okay, but not. The Babylonians, right, turned on Judah and destroyed the temple and exiled the people. So everything we're hearing, it sounds a little melodramatic, 
put in the mouth of the uh, Deuteronomist, but it's, it's not alarmist. It's what happened. Everything the Deuteronomist is worried about happened. Now, it's not our theology, but it is the theology of the Deuteronomist that if y'all pull it together and if you recommit to building a society based on what Deuteronomy wants, which is the king, the, the temple worship, the judiciary, uh, everything to be subsumed under the law. If you build a society like that, you may stave off the conquering of Judah. It never happened. So what's sad about reading Deuteronomy is here's this huge work of pulling everything together under a law code. That's how we live now in the United States. That's how we live. We live under the law that is the Constitution. And each branch of government, the legislative, the executive, the judiciary, all of them have their realm, their area of control. There's checks and balances on them. They are independent, especially the judiciary. That's a big move in the ancient Near East, an independent judiciary. And all of it is subject to the law. That is an amazing thing. That existed nowhere else in the ancient Near East. Nowhere. And, for, and in many places, it didn't exist for a really, really, really long time, right? Until we have constitutional monarchies uh, and then the experiment of the United States. So this was, this was an, an idealistic vision of if we can pull it together and do this, we, sh- we stand a chance at, at earning divine protection and staving off exile. Um, it didn't happen. That never happened. It didn't get built. Um, they didn't have the opportunity. We don't even know if they um, would have agreed, right, to, to live in such a society, but it never happened. So this is the vision of the Deuteronomist. This is the vision of the reforms, the Josianic reforms that never got put in place. All right, so that's the historical setting, right, is... Um, is what I've told you at great length. But of course, we read this book as our spiritual story. So Jody went back to Rav Lecha, it's enough. That unfortunately, each one of us has a time where it's enough. We may not think it's enough. We want another occasion. We want another thing to celebrate. We want to live till this. We want to accomplish that. But the answer is Rav Lachem. It's, it's enough. Your time has come. And that is certainly how the Deuteronomist expresses it, that, that, that Moshe's time is over. Moshe's a human being, and all of us human beings have limits. And all of us have term limits. <laughs> and you've reached yours, Moshe, um, is what the Deuteronomist is saying. Um, but so what do we take as the message of Deuteronomy? Who else has a God like you, Israel, that took you out of the blast furnace and gave you this incredible land to inherit. What is the message that we take from Deuteronomy, particularly at this point of Tisha B'Av? We know it fell. We know it didn't work. What is the message we can take? We've just commemorated the fall of both temples 
loss of our sovereignty, our subjugation to other people who are now going to torture and kill us. What's, what's the message? Sarah has an idea. Live fully in the time that you have. Live fully in the time that you have. That is the only thing, ultimately, you will be able to control. Right? You don't, you don't control how much time you get. You, you may get a lot. You may get a little. You don't, Rav Lechem, that's not up to y'all. We, you have to live fully into the time that you're given. And Dana says, part of the message is, you've been given the law. Examine it. Turn it and turn it and turn it again. You cannot abdicate. This is me commenting on Dana's comment. You cannot abdicate responsibility for the law. You have to know it and you have to study it and you have to figure out how to implement it. What does it mean? How do you implement what's going to be a just and equitable society based on right the teachings of our tradition and what our tradition would call right God's ways. Bob? Yeah, um, I'm impressed with the fact that in spite, first of all, uh, two things. Uh, the Jewish people celebrate defeats as much as uh, victories. I was thinking, what kind of holidays do we have that celebrates our defeats? Well, essentially none. Um, so that's number one. Number two, in spite of the fall of the first and second temples, in spite of the Assyrians, and then 150 years later, remember, it, either the Babylonians conquered, it wasn't right on the heels of them. Um, we have persevered over three centuries, in spite of the fact that we're, we went through all of these crises. So clearly the law has benefit because that's what sustained us over three centuries. So, um, right. So I love uh, your point about, um, yeah. Where's our, where's our great, uh, holidays celebrating how powerful and victorious we are. They don't exist. Tisha B'Av, we commemorate destruction and losing sovereignty. Um, Micha Goodman claims that this is one of the beautiful things about our tradition is that we are always allied with the loser. We're always allied with the powerless. Our holidays are all about y'all were nothing. <laughs> you were bubkis. You were FS, zero, nothing. You were gum on the bottom of Pharaoh's shoe. That's what you were. I took you out of Egypt and I gave you this land. You didn't earn it. Y'all were afraid to go. Y'all wanted to send scouts. Then they came back saying, we can't do this. We can't do this. Like y'all, y'all did nothing. That this, when we make Kiddush, we do not commemorate, says Micha Goodman, King David conquering the Jebusites and establishing his, his shrine and his, his, you know, palace, his capital in Jerusalem. Where's that holiday? We don't have it. 
We don't have that holiday, right? So um, that Micha says this is antithetical to Egypt. This is the anti-Egypt story, and you're supposed to be the anti-Egypt people. Egypt worships death. Egypt worships power. You are the people who are powerless, and you will worship life. You will celebrate life. We just saw it, right? We just saw that language in Deuteronomy. We're going to see it over and over and over again. You all are to build a society based on justice and life and living. You will live by these words. And that's how you'll stay alive and stay thriving in the land. It's by being just and equitable and honest and law-abiding God's law abiding citizens and God is a voice in the sky. It is not Pharaoh. It is not the king. It is not David. It is not Josiah. It is not Hezekiah. It is yud heh vav alone. This is the project, the anti-Egypt project. And if you don't, and we're going to see it, Micha has this beautiful lecture where he points it out right there in the text. And if you don't, if you behave like Egypt, I will treat you just like Egypt. It is up to you. Judith? To support Sarah's idea of cherish each day, our toast is L'chaim. We say it so often. We don't say a lot of other toast. We say l'chaim, live life. You, you don't know how much time you get, so live what time you do get. Don't exactly. waste it. Exactly. This is our emphasis. This is what we're all coming back to. Oh my God, I just muted him. We're never going to get him out of it now. All right. Um, of course, the minute he unmutes, his phone rings. Of course. And I have to mute him. Oh my God. <laughs> All right, um, so I want to look at how some, uh, as we come to the end of our time, some uh, words from other people who have tried to figure out what the heck all this is about. This is Rabbi Debbie Goldstein, who says this week's Parsha is rather extraordinary and somewhat intimidating. It includes storytelling and history, the Ten Commandments, the first paragraph of the Shema, always read on Shabbat Nachamu, the Shabbat of Comfort following Tisha B'Av, it is a fitting Parsha to read as we begin to really dig in and prepare for the coming weeks of reflection and soul searching as we head towards Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It opens with a deeply personal individual story. Moshe gives a farewell speech to the Israelites. That's what we just read. Telling them how he pleaded with God, asking, please let me go into Israel. God refuses and tells the Israelites, God was wrathful with me on your account and tells Moshe to go up to Pisgah, and look out, because then he can see uh, Israel and give uh, Joshua his instructions. One interpretation of this interaction is that Moshe's asking God for a gift as a source of comfort for all he's done. And God says, I've done enough for you. Rav lecha. Leave space for others. Because there will never be an end. And if you enter Israel, you'll only want more. God is telling Moshe to appreciate the abundance of what he already has, see the land, and be grateful for what he already has. Others have interpreted the reason as punishment, 
Moses did not live up to God's rules for him. He struck the rock and as a consequence could not be rewarded, right? God was angry with me on your account. The Stephen Garfinkel at JTS says, instead of taking responsibility for mistakes he's made as a leader, this is an indicator that Moshe perhaps has peaked in his leadership, losing his balance and letting leadership go to his head. No longer is he fit to lead, but he also offers an alternative. The people needed a change in leadership so that they would not be too accustomed to one person. They were going to a new place, and a new place would, re- would require uh, a different perspective, right? So that Moshe's not the leader that they're going to need when they're trying to do this new project, that we need different kinds of leaders or different kinds of times. We've, we've explored this together before. Um, but for this project of living in the land, legislating, actually putting together the society that was going to be stable and that was going to earn God's favor enough for them to stay there and win the wars that were going to come to them, um, then that took a different kind of leadership than what Moshe has. Um, and certainly as we look towards November, um, right, that's the question that will be asked of us. Who, what kind of leadership do you want? We are in a new situation. We have never been in this situation of a worldwide pandemic before. We have never really, well, maybe in the 60s, but no time recently, have we really confronted the inequities built into our society the way we're doing now. Why are there rubber bullets shelly to people's heads right now? That's happening because some people are freaking out. They were actually getting in touch with the rage and the sadness and the loss and the grief and the injustice that has been happening uh, in our society. And what, what is the leadership for this time? What, who is it we want to lead us? What are the skills? What is the personality that we need right now? Is it the one we have? Is it a different one? Like November is all about this. Deuteronomy understands. You are in an unprecedented reality. Maybe Moshe's not the guy. As great as Moshe was, as wonderful a leader as Moshe was, It's a new reality, and you're going to need a different set of skills, possibly, to get you through um, the times that you're living in. That is the question that we will be asking uh, as America in November. All right, I want to take a look quickly at this. Um, And so this was, uh, I found this just really moving. Uh, It's a piece uh, by uh, Rabbi Jeff, I want to say Jeff Eisenstadt. Let's see if his name is on here. Um, Jeff Eisenstadt wrote this piece um, Parsha, on Parshat Ve'et Hanan, uh, and it's a piece that he he delivered to uh, a graduating class, so a class of seniors. All this stuff is his stuff on Ve'et Hanan, on this Parsha, but, um, but I just love that he gave this graduation address and quoted the Parsha. If you ask a rabbi to give a talk, guess what they're going to do? They're going to quote the Parsha. It's just what we do. And so he, he pulls out this piece from, from Ve'et Hanan, from our Parsha, and he talks to them about the fact that they have been treasured and that they have been invested in by their parents and by their teachers and by their grandparents and by the generations before them. 
And, and he said, you know, you are the reason your teachers have worked so hard to get you to learn, even when you sometimes have given up on yourself. To your parents, your caretakers, and your teachers, you are treasured people. They have set their hearts on you. They have chosen to dedicate a piece of their lives to you. You carry with you the tremendous gift of being worried over, cared for, prized, and doted upon. And he says, yeah, I know that's intense for y'all, and you wish sometimes they'd pick somebody else. I get it. But, right, it doesn't change the reality. In the Bible's book of Deuteronomy, Moses makes a speech to the Israelites to prepare them for the final journey they will take into the land of Israel. Moses has led them for 40 years ever since the day God delivered them, blah, 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 blah. Um, And Moses knows that he'll not be able to enter the land with them. And he has this one last chance to teach them the things he believes they need to hear before they go in, meaning without him. He says, like, I'm not Moshe and you're not Israelites. Um, I'm not going where you're going. In the long run, neither are your parents, caregivers, and teachers. You, too, have reached a juncture in life in which you will enjoy some new freedoms, but also new responsibilities. Everything you do, good and bad, will truly be your own now. You'll carry your own baggage, right? You're going to have tough times. Like the ancient Israelites, you have an opportunity to turn the hardships of your past into the possibilities of your future. Moshe told the Israelites, God has chosen you to be God's treasured people. Am segula. That's a message that you should hear today as if it were whispered to you personally in your ear. You are treasured, not because you're the best football player, the fastest sprinter, the best writer, blah, 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 but because you are you. So he says, you know, we, we have this language of being the chosen people. Being chosen means living always with the intention of being the best person you can be. It means doing what you know in your heart is right, even when it is inconvenient. It means remembering your past and the path you have traveled. It means making yourself worthy of the privilege of being treasured. You are a treasure, all of you. There may be times you doubt yourself and times that you think the odds are stacked against you, but you have been given a chance to fulfill the hopes and expectations that your very life and existence represent. You have been given a chance to make your successes your own, to aspire as no one has ever aspired before you, to make your own difference in the world. My challenge to you today, my friends, is to remember. Remember the people who have placed their hopes in you. Remember to keep looking back to your core values and to what you most deeply believe in. This is how you will stay true to your mission. They're beautiful, beautiful words, really. And I know we're not graduating college. I know we're far past that. But I, but I think the point is, that, and, I, and I, Sarah, you talk about this a lot. I feel like you embody it a lot, which is we are the living hopes and dreams of our ancestors, of all the people that risked everything, the people who were sorry about how their lives turned out, people who really hoped we would do it differently people who gave us as best they could the resources and the advice and the counsel and the doting on us to help us make a go of it based on our values. And our, I, our, our obligation is to live as true as we can to that trust 
and to those aspirations. And it's what Moshe's telling the people. It's what we need to remind ourselves of. It's why we read this every single year. So even as we come to this time of breakage and damage and destruction and loss and grief, we are chosen. We have been treasured. And all the ways that that didn't happen, all the ways that people failed us, all the ways that we didn't get what we needed, all of it can be grist for the mill. All of it can be things that we turn around, things that we use to do it differently and to create a different kind of society that hopefully is based in these ideas of justice and equity and compassion. So um, as we begin to move out of Tisha B'Av and begin to move towards that arc of of reflection, um, let us remember that we have been treasured um, enough to be given this teaching. And uh, ours is to take it seriously. Ours is to turn it and turn it and turn it and to figure out how it is we can use it uh, to build the kind of world that would make our ancestors proud. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.